0: This is what John writes. To the angel of the church in Ephesus writes, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise, which is in the paradise of God. Then lesson number two from Jesus. To the angel of the church in Smyrna writes, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander who those... Of those who say they're Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Let's pray, shall we? Let's pray as we begin. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the one who holds the seven stars in your right hand. You walk amongst the seven golden lampstands, which are the churches. And that means that you know our church as we meet this afternoon and you care for us. Thank you that you are the first and the last who died and came to life again and so i pray father we we will be people who share in jesus's victory who are victorious knowing that we won't be hurt at all by the second death and we commit our hearts however victorious or however defeated we might be feeling this afternoon we commit our hearts to you in jesus name amen
1: and um, we're going to read again from revelation chapter 2 and um, verses 12 to 29 which again can be found on page 1,234 of the Bibles, Um, starting from verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. Who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead then all the churches will know that I am He who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery just as i have received authority from my father i will also give that one the morning star whoever has ears let them hear what the spirit says to the churches
0: in a minute my dish is going to come and teach us from revelation chapters two and three those seven letters that jesus writes to those seven churches Uh, but we've got three more letters to listen to so dawn's going to come and read to us from revelation chapter three you'll find that on page one two three five in these red bibles page one two three five
2: um this is revelation chapter three um verses one to twenty two that's page one two three five in your bibles so revelation three one to twenty two from god's word Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched pitiful poor blind and naked i counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see those whom i love i rebuke and discipline so be earnest and repent here i am i stand at the door and knock If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches.
3: Thank you, Dawn. Hi, everyone. Uh, My name is Madush, if we haven't met. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Church. Uh, Please, will you keep those Bibles open in front of you, page 1,234. We will refer to the text as we make our way through this. Um, We've read seven letters. We could quite justifiably spend seven weeks or more uh, working our way through each of them, Uh, but we're looking through all of them uh, today in one week. Um, we'll be doing that as we go through this series in Revelation. Uh, We'll be looking at it in bigger sections um, to get a sweep and an understanding of how God is at work and rules over human history. So keep that in mind. We're not going to cover all of the detail, um, but please do chat about it. Uh, Please do come to me or Jeremy afterwards and ask us questions about the detail if there's something that's troubling you. Well, let me pray now as we begin and as we turn our hearts to Christ. Father God, as we read in Revelation chapter four, you are worthy to receive all glory and honor and power. We pray that this afternoon you would open our eyes, that we would see the risen and glorious Christ who is among us and who strengthens us. Father, expose our compromise where we have sinned against you and turn us in repentance to Jesus. Amen. How do assessments make you feel? Anybody enjoy them? Uh, Maybe you're a student, uh, you may have recently had exams, you may have exams coming up. You may have had essays that need submitting. Maybe you have a performance review at work or you have a promotion that's coming up, and you have to sit in an interview and be grilled. I've never found that a pleasant experience. I remember as a kid, uh, the day we got our report cards was an anxious one. There was a lot of academic pressure. Would my performance be good enough? I think that's natural. We, We all feel anxious when our future is hanging in the balance when it comes down to whether someone thinks we've performed well enough, whether we're going to make the cut. And how much harder is that when there's a world of other pressures weighing down on you? Well, in some respects, these seven letters to the churches are like report cards. You did well here, poorly there, He has some room for improvement. But the difference is that although Christ knows the good and the bad, where churches are faithful and where they have compromised, he speaks to comfort and to strengthen, not to make us afraid. Remember John's vision from chapter 1. He has a vision of the risen Lord Jesus. And that that vision reminds us of the glory and power of the Ancient of Days and of the Son of Man from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Jesus before him radiates holiness and brilliance. He exudes power and authority as the eternal king of God's everlasting kingdom. John, when he sees that vision, is stunned by the weightiness of Jesus' presence. He falls on his face, awestruck. But do you remember what Jesus says to him? Jesus said, 1 verse 17, Don't be afraid. I, Jesus, have the authority a life and death, and I'm on your side. Now, Jesus speaks to John and to us through the book of Revelation to comfort and strengthen us. Now, you'll have noticed uh, through the service as we heard these seven letters read that there's a pattern to them. Uh, first, there is an address uh, to the angel or the messenger of each church. and Then we're given a description of Christ. These are his words. And he is the glorious ruler of God's kingdom. It, it extends that image that we've had from chapter 1. And because Christ is among his churches, he knows their situation intimately. He praises their faithfulness, and he exposes ways in which they've compromised. Then he calls them to action before urging them to listen, to take his words seriously, as he holds out a promise of what those who faithfully persevere have in him that's how all of the letters work he's addressing real situations of real churches in the real world he knows what's going on and he cares now these letters are historical they're written to seven actual churches with real situations but the fact that there are seven of them is also symbolic These seven churches also represent local churches everywhere during this age. Now, that's the period between Jesus' death and his resurrection and his future return in glory. Christ's words to them are for us. They're for every church during this period. So while each letter is addressed to a church, Every letter is for every church. Let me show you. Uh, Take a look at chapter 2, verse 7, page 1,234. That letter is written to the church in Ephesus, but do you see what Jesus says? Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. It's for every church. The same is true in chapter 2, verse 11, to the church in Smyrna. It's addressed to them, but it is for all the churches. And that's repeated for every one of the seven letters. The point is that they work together and they are written for us. Christ wants us to see what's at stake. He wants us to know the dangers that are before us, to know the promise of what waits for those who are faithful, those who are described as the victorious, And so, he calls us to turn from compromise, knowing the reward for persevering. As we listen to his words, keep in view that image of Jesus from chapter 1, the risen and glorious king. Now, there's a lot we could focus on. We are going to focus on the dangers that churches face during this age. we can cluster them into three groups. Now, I'm not just making up those groups. They correspond with the enemies of God's people that Christ judges later on in the book. They are all allies of the dragon, who is identified as that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. The first danger is giving up under persecution. Later in the book, it's the beast who is given the power and authority of the dragon who attacks the church in this way with intimidating violence. The second is being led astray by deceptive teaching. That's symbolized later in the book by the false prophet who deceives people into worshiping the beast. And the third is the seduction of worldly pleasures, wealth, comfort, sensual delights, sins that lure us into compromise. That line of attack is represented by the great prostitute Babylon, who is dressed in finery and covered in jewels. She is powerfully attractive so we see that there are threats from outside and inside the church. Persecution, deceptive teaching, ungodly living. Let's consider each of them in turn. Listen first to what Christ says to the church in Smyrna. Chapter 2, verse 9. Jesus says... I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you're rich. I know about the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Here's a church facing intense opposition. The opposition is political and economic, but it sounds like it was instigated by Jews. Christ doesn't mince his words. He says, you may think you are Jews, you may think you are the people of God, but you are doing Satan's work. What form did the persecution take? Verse 9, they're in poverty. Maybe doing business with integrity had cut into their profits. Maybe non-Christians wouldn't trade with them anymore. Maybe they couldn't find employment or lost jobs because of their Christian witness. In the same verse, they are also being slandered. People were spreading false rumors about them. That would have affected their relationships, their reputation in the society. They were mentally and emotionally under stress. They were being treated unfairly. Verse 10, Jesus says that some of them would be imprisoned. They would suffer greatly, but in God's mercy, it would only be for a limited time. The opposition is so great that Christ urges them to be faithful even to the point of death. That's how extreme it is. Friends, we must not be surprised when such opposition comes. It was the norm for first-century Christians, and it is the norm for hundreds of millions of Christians around the world today. While we face some opposition, we generally aren't facing poverty or prison or death. Not at this time and in this place. But we must realize That is unusual. It is not the normal Christian experience. God has given us a lengthy period of relative peace and freedom from intimidating violence. That is His grace. It is an opportunity for us not to become complacent, but to use to witness to Christ. And yet, if you're anything like me, just the threat of some discomfort, maybe missing out on a promotion, or not being able to live where I would like to, that makes us anxious. We are conditioned to do almost whatever it takes to avoid rejection and suffering. We must hear Jesus here and repent. What is the gospel truth that empowers Christians to stand in the face of such opposition? Look at the truth of 2 verse 8. See how Jesus is described. Jesus is the first and the last who died and came to life again. Uh, Do you remember that language from chapter 1? You can take a look back. It's just one page back. Flip over. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 17. John has that stunning image of the risen Jesus in all his glory, and he falls on his face. And Jesus says to him, verse 17, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and look, I'm alive forever. Which means that I hold the keys of death and the place of the dead. Not Satan. Not the people who hate you. And therefore, back to the church in Smyrna, chapter 2, verse 10. Do you see what he says to these Christians? Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Jesus rules. He's in control. He loves his church, and he is present among us. The persecution of the church is not a sign that he is powerless or uncaring. Christ is doing something through it. For now, we can take comfort that we aren't alone, that he knows our situation, and he cares what's the worst they can do do you see what jesus is saying here it doesn't matter very much if they lie about you it doesn't matter very much if they take your possessions it doesn't matter very much even if they kill you why the end of verse 10 i jesus will give you life as your victor's crown. The end of verse 11. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Jesus is the Lord of life. He's the one who rules, He's the one who's in control. And He holds out life to those who are faithful. And He's not just calling us to passively endure whatever comes. He's saying, make an active choice to follow me. Be faithful even to the point of death. Choose it because you know Christ rules. Choose it because you know he has the keys of life. Choose it because you are actually secure in him. That's the truth that strengthens us to bear the cost when we face that sort of opposition. Don't be surprised when it comes. Hang on to that truth when it comes. Well, that's the first danger, persecution. The second is deceptive teaching. Christ commends the Ephesians because chapter two, verse two, they have tested those who claim to be apostles and have found them false. There are people who are rising up within the church who are claiming to be from God and are not. Chapter 2, verse 6, they also hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which is another sect that taught error. By contrast, there were some in Pergamum, 2, verse 14, who hold to the teaching of Balaam. And verse 15, who holds to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. In Thyatira, 2 verse 20, there's a woman called Jezebel, or who's compared with the Old Testament character, who is a false prophet, misleading the church by her teaching. See, what we have here is error that emerges from within the church. It's so dangerous because it's persuasive. It sounds plausible. It appears to be wise, it may even look as if it's generous and loving, yet it departs from God's words and therefore it leads the church to sin. I Take a look at 2 verse 14 again. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality." Now, it's unlikely that the people who held this teaching associated it with Balaam themselves. Jesus seems to be drawing the comparison to show how destructive the teaching is. What this refers to is events from Numbers 25. The Israelites had been enticed by the Moabites into sexual immorality and spiritual adultery. Balaam was the mastermind behind the plot. It sounds like a similar thing is happening in this church. Uh, Look at 2 verse 20. There's a similar thing going on there. This is the effect of following the false prophet Jezebel. By her teaching she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Do you see the close link between teaching that deviates from scripture and lifestyles which are characterized by sin? Let me give you a contemporary example. There are dozens and dozens. Here's one. In the wider culture and in the church, God's teaching on human sexuality and gender identity is being challenged. There are some Christian leaders who say, surely a good and loving God would be generous and inclusive. I mean, God doesn't expect us to live by the primitive cultural values of the ancient Near East, does he? But that line of thinking does not stand up against God's word. Instead, it leads the church into sexual immorality and spiritual adultery. Rather than liberating and empowering those who are on the fringes of society, who have been marginalized, what we have are more broken families, more sexual violence, more emotional distress and social awkwardness that come From the loss of God given identity. How do we stand against such teaching? What is the gospel truth that strengthens us? Well, again, consider Christ. 2 verse 12. These are the words of Him who has the sharp, double edged sword. The sword comes out of his mouth. Jesus' words are the authoritative standard of truth. His word is the weapon that counterintuitively restores the broken. But it is also the symbol of his authority in judgment. So look at the warning in 2 verse 16. Jesus is saying that he he will intervene in judgment if the church does not take his word seriously and turn from its sin. That same warning is present in 2 verse 22. He's saying, turn from sin or suffer the consequences of my judgment. But to the faithful, he says, verse 25, Hold on to what you have until I come. There's nothing else. There are no advanced teachings. You've got it all. If you've heard the gospel, you've got it. And so he's saying to these Christians, simply hold on to the gospel as you received it. Listen to me and obey me. Christ strengthens us to do so well those are the first two threats persecution deceptive teaching the third threat is the seduction of worldly pleasures we've seen the link between deceptive teaching and chasing after sensual pleasure you can also think of it in this way If intimidating violence is the stick of persecution, the thing that threatens us, worldly pleasures are the carrot, the stuff that we desire, the things that we will enjoy if we conform to secular culture. These are things that exert a powerful pull on our hearts. We are tricked into believing that we are missing out if we don't have them now, the power, prestige, and security of wealth, the desire for comfort and to avoid suffering, the gratification of our physical senses, food, sex, romance, leisure, exotic holidays. Consider the church in Laodicea, chapter 3, verse 17. This is what they say. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and don't eat a thing. But you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Friends, you can gather to yourself uh, all the treasures this world has to offer and have nothing. You might have the illusion of security and yet be in grave danger. Our tendency is to be blind to how much we are trusting in the pursuit of worldly pleasures to satisfy us. Here's the truth. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 14. Again, consider Christ. Uh, These are the words of the Amen. The faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Jesus is the ruler of God's creation. It's all His. And He generously shares it with us. You may have made it to the top of your field. You might think that you're wealthy. But that's like a child uh, holding on to their piggy bank and standing next to King Charles, decked in the crown jewels at his coronation, and saying, as they look up at him, look how rich I am. How foolish. You're a beggar. Don't you see it? But listen to what Jesus promises. Uh, 3 verse 21. To the one who is victorious, I, Jesus, will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my Father on his throne. Jesus rules, he's the true king, he has true wealth and glory. Our desires are only satisfied in Him. And we will enjoy fuller and richer treasure when we sit with Him on His throne and share in His rule. There's simply no comparison. The stuff that we attempted to chase, the stuff that we enjoy, that we think is going to satisfy us, turns out to be empty and hollow. That's why Jesus can say, buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. So you can have your sins forgiven and be counted holy. Buy salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. See, though this church in Laodicea is at best half-hearted toward Christ, his love for them is firm. And so Jesus still urges them and us to turn in repentance. Realize your condition. See the truth. And turn. Well, those are the dangers that these seven letters highlight. The threat of persecution, of deceptive teaching, and of chasing after worldly pleasures. There's one more important feature that I think is worth highlighting before we end. You may have noticed that there are both communal and individual consequences for our sin. Uh, Take a look with me at chapter 2, verse 5. Do you see from that that the whole church is in danger? Jesus says that if they don't repent, he will remove their lampstand, which symbolizes the church itself. You'll see the same thing in chapter 3, verse 16, uh, the last letter. Uh, Christ threatens to spit out the whole church if they don't repent. The consequences of their sin are communal. It affects everybody. But at the same time, take a look at chapter 2, verse 24. Though there are some who have followed the false prophets, Christ commends and holds out hope for the few who have been faithful. And again, in chapter 3, verse 4 In a church that has been faithless, there are still some who have remained pure. And Jesus looks at them and counts them worthy to inherit eternal life. So here's the point. We are responsible as individuals for our sinfulness or our faithfulness. But we are also mutually accountable. The decisions that we make as individuals, whether we choose compromise or bear the cost of being faithful, have a bearing on the whole community. We are responsible for one another. What we choose makes it harder or easier for the rest of the community to faithfully trust in Christ. He will hold us accountable. Friends, it is so important that we hear that challenge and that we repent because we live in a culture that proclaims you do you. Please don't. What you do affects us. It really matters. Well friends, these letters direct our vision to the risen and glorious Christ. Keep that vision fixed in your mind. THEY EACH END WITH A PROMISE AND WITH THE ASSURANCE OF WHAT HIS FAITHFUL PEOPLE HAVE IN HIM. CHRIST PROMISES THAT WE WILL INHERIT ETERNAL LIFE IF WE PERSEVERE, IF WE REPENT OF OUR SIN AND WE HOLD ON TO THE TRUTH AS WE HAVE RECEIVED IT FROM HIM. FOR THE CHRISTIANS WHO ARE DESCRIBED IN THESE CHAPTERS, WHOSE HEARTS HAD GROWN LUKEWARM, who had abandoned their first love for Christ, for those who faced hardship at every turn for being associated with a crucified Savior, for those for whom everyday pleasures, affluence, comfort, and security looked so attractive, and to enjoy it, all they had to do was live like the people around them, for Christians like that, for Christians like us, Christ is shouting, Wake up! Wake up! Listen to Jesus' words, hold firmly on to them, and repent of compromise. But remember the hope for this glorious and terrifying Christ who rules over God's kingdom speaks to his church for our comfort, to strengthen us. And so if we turn, he is faithful. Let's pray for that. Christ, our Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see our true condition. Where we are complacent, wake us up. Where we have compromised, forgive us and lead us in repentance. We rejoice that you are with us, strengthening us to faithfully persevere. Amen.